Hi, my name is Kim Wilkins, and I'm a graduate student at the School of Education at the University of Virginia. I'm studying curriculum and instruction with a focus on innovation and computer science education. This series of podcast episodes is all about bringing computer science education research into the K-8 classroom. Welcome to the first in a series of blog posts and podcasts about taking a deeper dive into the current K-8 computer science education research world. I thought it would be good to spend the first episode of the podcast looking sort of at the anatomy of a research paper with my advisor, Dr. Jennifer Chu. So welcome, Jenny. Thank you for having me. It's so exciting to be here. Well, this is, thank you for letting me do this. (laughs) I'm really excited about doing this. So who are you? What do you do? So my name is uh, Jenny Chu. I am an associate professor um, in curriculum instruction and special education uh, at the University of Virginia. Uh, Before that, I I started out as an engineer at Hewlett Packard, and then I went and I taught uh, math and science in high school. And then I saw the disparity in tech uh, in, from Silicon Valley uh, into classrooms. And so I decided to go back to grad school to try to address that. So uh, now I am, uh, and I, I would consider myself a, a STEM plus computer science uh, a researcher. So I, I do work in uh, science, technology, uh, engineering, and math, and now integrating uh, computation into, into those fields. Awesome. So you kind of touched on it a bit, but why, why did research become a path for you? Yeah, so I yeah I, I touched on it for a bit. Um, it was actually when um, I was teaching, two things really stand out. One was the uh, the number of female students who came up to me and said, you know, thank you. It's really nice having a, a female teacher in these advanced science and math courses. And then, uh, you know, naive me, I thought, oh, we had solved this whole gender. <laughs> Uh, inequality bit back in the 70s. And, and I looked around, I said, oh my goodness, no, this is, this is true. I'm like, I'm the only one uh, teaching these, these advanced classes. And uh, the, other, the other bit was actually um, helping to see how different approaches in the classroom, um, different technology enhanced approaches, uh, uh, not only the inequity in access um, and just what's developed for classrooms, but, but also how like an engineering approach in a science class can really uh, open up the doors for people who may not be traditionally interested in um, mathematics or uh, science. And the same thing with computation, the ways that um, you know, integrating uh, computation can be really uh, motivating and interesting for students who may not um, traditionally be uh, interested in science or math. Yeah, I you know, obviously had a similar experience myself. And so one of the things I wanted to do in this program is get more time to actually look at the research. Because I think when you're a classroom teacher, you don't have a lot of time or really access to um, a lot of the research. And so that's one of the things I'm hoping this podcast and, and series will do, but how, how do you feel that research should inform practice and what are ways that that can happen? Yeah, so I think that's a really uh, great question. And uh, because I, I think that uh, there's been um, historically this kind of divide between uh, you know educational research and educational practice um, and being able to uh, learn from each other to have 
uh, you know, practice inform research as well as research inform practice. Um, I think uh, as a field and as a group, we're doing a better job um, with more emphases in like these types of research uh, practice partnerships, like with uh, RPPs. I want to be cautious because I know that practitioners have little, very little bandwidth, and they're asked to be doing, you know, everything for these students um, and very underpaid. And so I think, of course, one of the guiding principles is to be able to distill uh, research um, in ways that are digestible and, uh, you know, relevant to uh, practitioners. Uh, but also being able to sort of keep the nuance in the research because, um, of course, it's just like um, science in general. And I'm a big fan of the nature of science is, you know, one study isn't going to uh, prove uh, anything, right? It's it's being able to take a body of research, being able to look at maybe a meta-analysis uh, across a lot of studies to say like, you know, okay, this works not only in this one small context with this one researcher, but this works across a large body of, of contexts and researchers. Or, you know, it, it could be the other way as well. It could be that, you know, hey, this, this works in a context that's a lot like mine, so maybe I should try something like this out. Uh, but but just being able to understand is uh, and 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 trying to uh, yeah understand what's coming out from 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 research can be really valuable for practitioners. Yeah, and I'm so I feel so fortunate that when I came on board, we were already starting to build this research practice partnership out, and I got to go to some. Um, workshop sessions about what that really means and is. And it just really feels like it matches my philosophy a lot. Uh, I feel like I was a little bit worried that uh, research meant I would be off separated, <laughs> and you know, kind of heads down. Again, a lot of the misconceptions we have with computer science followed me with research. I don't know why that is, you know, that I'd be alone in doing my thing. And so this idea of a, a research practice partnership is really I really like it because you're looking at some a problem that uh, folks really want a solution to because they're part of the process, and then um, you're able to try things out with those practitioners and and see what works and see what doesn't work. So I think it's a really cool uh, methodology. Yeah, and really valuing the input and like what what is important to practitioners and researchers being able to yeah like you're saying respond to that. And, and hopefully respond to that in a timely fashion, because I think something that I really loved uh, being a researcher is, you know, you can really do a deep dive into one week or two weeks of classroom instruction in a way that you just can never do as a teacher. And so uh, the flip side of that, though, is that, you know, instead of papers or coming out after a year, like you want results uh, for practitioners, you know, timely. So <laughs> right, timely. right. Yeah. So there's definitely some disconnects there as well as you know, a lot of this research is behind paywalls and other things. So now that I have access to the UVA library, it's like this whole world is opened up to me. And, uh, and so that's also a bit frustrating. That's a great point. I thought we could just kind of do um, an, the anatomy of a research paper, very basic, covering just what's sort of included so that when I'm further on down talking about different research papers and um, maybe using terminology, uh, we can come back to this. So the first thing I want to talk about is just sort of the basic types of research. As I understand it, there's qualitative, quantitative, and mixed methods. Those are sort of the basic 
Um, how would you describe those? You know, uh, I am not a methodologist. Uh, so I, I'm just, I was just thinking as you were saying that it's like, well, how would I describe uh, quantitative <laughs> and qualitative? So, uh, and mixed methods. So I, I, and you can help me out here, Kim, because you've taken these classes uh, much more recently than I have. But uh, quantitative is typically if you are, you know, I hate to use the, the, the title of it in, in the definition, but if you're trying to quantify something, so it's uh, numbers based, if you have uh, surveys with numerical responses, if you have assessments with um, some sort of numerical response or even kind of categorical response, um, it's, it's something that you are measuring and assessing, I guess, uh, in a, yes, um, a quantitative way. Um, mm -hmm. so I, I know that my, 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 uh, definition is somewhat circular, <laughs> but, but numbers, I guess you can like ascribe numbers to things and values to things, um, with quantitative research. Um, and then you're doing, you're doing some sort of statistical analysis. Typically, yes, some yeah. sort of tip, uh, statistical analyses to figure out, um, you know, uh, what, how, how students, I mean, very, very simply, like how students might improve over time, right? Any sort of differences among groups, uh, that, those types of, those types of questions. And I guess one of the ways we've done it is sort of pre and post surveys, right? right? Like how did, how did, how, what, what kind of movement was there on um, different measurements? Right. And, and usually with quantitative studies, um, you're trying to have some sort of inference, right? So uh, you want to test something out. So you've done some sort of intervention, right? And you want to see what's happening from pre to post. So you're looking at sort of outcomes of, of yeah. questions. So for qualitative research, that's usually answering more of a like uh, how or a why question, mm -hmm. as opposed to uh, quantitative research, which is more like what. So with, with qualitative research, you're using like interviews or uh, observations to really try to either, you know, on the back end, if you have this kind of growth in your students, um, figure out why that might be the case. Um, and so you can do interviews with students, you can do classroom observations to try to generate hypotheses or predictions um, about um, why that might be the case or how something might work. What I just described is actually more of a mixed method approach where mm -hmm. you might be able to take quantitative findings and then use qualitative findings to um, sort of dig in to, to the data. Um, another way that a mixed method approach might happen is if you're doing more of an exploratory um, study, uh, qualitative study, where you're, um, you know, asking, uh, do, doing, doing interviews or observations, and then using that to inform a quantitative study uh, to follow up on your um, hypotheses. You know, within these a bunch of different specific, more specific types, um, you know, case studies, all, all these types of things that um, uh, are very exciting and very interesting. Yeah. And if you're interested, there are programs that you can go into to learn out about all about it. Many, many <laughs> um, books. Yeah, I think the um, interesting thing about uh, qualitative is that you as a researcher actually become part, you're like a part of the instrument because your biases and your viewpoints and all that are uh, also something you have to consider. Um, it's not just, I guess, qual quantitative is on the surface a little bit more objective. Yeah, I think that they both have their own biases. And I mean, yes, but, but 
typically you have to, because there are more, I, I, maybe not more, but different types of inferences made from the data, then uh, usually in qualitative um, research, there has to be more acknowledgement of, of a researcher as instrument um, yeah. and potential biases that may exist. And do exist. All right, so let's take a little uh, a bit of a dive into uh, sort of the parts of a research paper. And I know this isn't like, there can be some variations in this, but there's usually a title. <laughs> And uh, I've learned that a title is uh, really important to, um, you know, because there's so much research out there that you really want to grab the attention of somebody, but in a way that's relevant and not, you know, make it too crazy. So that's a, you spend a lot of time on titles. Surprisingly. Yeah. And then there's always the, uh, you know, the advisor saying, you need to say things that are more articulate. And then the titles become like 30 words long. So right, right. <laughs> and then the abstract is usually 200, 250 words, like summary of the research. And that is, um, as researchers, you know, we take, that's kind of what we look at as we're going through and trying to find uh, research for our literature reviews, which we'll talk about and other things. So that's also super important. Yeah, I think that that's a great place to start with the research paper um, is like looking at the abstract. And if that is interesting to you, then, you know, full, you should go ahead and read the rest of the paper. And if it's not, then try another paper. <laughs> right, right. It's also something that's usually available uh, ahead of the uh, paywall if there is one. So at least you get some idea of what it is. Um, and then the paper itself has an introduction. So you start by introducing what the problem is, sort of lay out your rationale for why there's a problem, what it is, and then specifically what you want to research in the form of research questions. Yeah, and this was something I remember um, making the transition to, uh, since I came out of school in the, you know, in an engineering field and then moving over to the education uh, research body literature, it, it's just a different style of writing and it's a, a little bit more narrative, I guess. Um, and. Mm -hmm. As you were saying, Kim, there can be a lot of variation in terms of uh, these types of papers and, and how there might be, you know, some stories up in front or there, there, there just might be different ways to introduce um, the concepts. But yes, typically in the introduction, it's kind of placing this study in uh, like how it is important for educational research. And then there's usually a lit, lit review, which I've learned a lot about and <laughs> had to do a lot of. And this is where the researcher actually goes out and finds out what else is there on this subject. And uh, I, it, there's, that is a challenging thing to do. <laughs> it's really hard. And I, I think that this is where the review process really helps because in order for uh, a paper to be published within you know, a, a peer reviewed scientific journal, you have to prove that this is novel, right? And so, um, you have to prove that you know the literature enough to say, you know, this study is uh, is different in this way. It builds upon this research in this way. It's it's using what we know about education up to this point and building on that. So um, it is it is a, a very it's difficult and very important piece to construct in a paper. And then within that, there is this idea of a theoretical framework, which really opened my eyes a lot. I, uh, and many educators know about different theoretical frameworks like behaviorism, constructivism, 
uh, TPAC, which is a technology pedagogical content knowledge, but I didn't realize how important it was to include a theoretical framework in your research. Yeah, so the sometimes they're called like conceptual frameworks, um, or uh, they can also be uh, theoretical frameworks. Uh, but it's kind of like stating your worldview for for learning, and so mm-hmm. and and you could imagine that different worldviews uh, then take uh, different kinds of approaches to answering answering questions, and, and different types of lenses. You could also think of um, these frameworks as lenses then lend themselves to, to different types of questions, right? So if you're really concerned about behavior, then you're probably going to take some sort of a like behaviorist approach um, or, or not use potentially some other tools in the toolbox for other, for other lenses. Um, so, uh, so yeah, it's, 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 it's important to be able to, again, similarly to um, the other research that's out there is is to be able to situate yourselves within like the current thinking of the field. And so this is kind of like one instance of being able to, to frame your study in what has been done and, and one uh, like what kind of lens you are using for the educational problem that you're trying to address. So one that you introduced me to that just um, sort of blew my mind <laughs> Uh, is this teacher professional knowledge and skill framework, which I just I just love, and I have to I have to bring it up like all the time. <laughs> and so many papers I've read about, but it, it's not it's not it's pretty new. Like so, the, these frameworks are also being built out um, sort of continuously. And as a researcher, you might be building out part of a framework yourself, which I just think is really cool to be able to do. Yeah, so that uh, that one's by I uh, guess Newsom, and I think it was published in a book in 2015. And I literally found it googling because uh, we're looking for sort of models of uh, teachers' instructional decision making and how because there's been a large body of research. Again, you kind of have to go back in the uh, the history of of research. There's a large body of research in terms of like what knowledge teachers need to have when they're taking in, uh, when they go into the classroom, and then how that knowledge plays out and influences student learning. Um, And so that one uh, was uh, one that I I think can be really helpful for the types of questions, Kim, that you um, are trying to answer. Uh, Whereas, Mm -hmm. you know, if it was different questions about student learning, potentially we might have a different framework that we're using to look at student learning by itself, as opposed to like supporting teachers to integrate computer computing into their classrooms. Right. And I'll be looking at both the student side and the teacher side with research that we're, that I'll be diving into, but yeah, my, a lot, most of my research is focused on teachers and how they bring computer science and how, and their attitudes um, towards computer science. And so this uh, framework has a set of amplifiers and filters that are based on teacher beliefs and orientation and prior knowledge and context. And just having been in the classroom and see that, you know, I, I know that's true because I've been there and I've seen how that uh, happens. And so just having this sort of visual of it was just like so powerful for me. All right. So the next section is the methods. And this yes. is what you did, right? <laughs> Yeah, so that's where it becomes a little bit more like a, a lab report that everyone's mm-hmm. gone through with the um, sort of the science, right? Uh, uh, where you, yeah, describe the context, the participants, um, what kind of data you gathered, uh, and how you analyze the data. 
um, all within sort of the, the method section. Yeah, and this can be a little um, daunting if you don't have research background, uh, but it's good to have there because you know, you know, it sort of proves that they did what they said they were going to do and um, gives you a level of comfort with that. Yeah, and in the spirit of science, right? And I'm sorry, I'm a former science teacher here. It's uh, replicability, right? So if you wanted yeah. to go and replicate this study, then you've got enough information to where um, about the context, about what they did, that you could go out and try this in your classroom. Yep. Um, and then we have results. Uh, yay, yeah. So results are where hopefully uh, they're answering the questions using the methods that they described. And that's kind of the, um, if I'm going to skip, if I'm going to skim somewhere um, and really want to just find out the, the meat of the paper, it's usually going to the results first. So looking at the, what are the research questions and then skimming to the, uh, the results to see, well, what happened? Yeah. What, what, what was the outcome? And then there's a discussion section, which um, this, is a, this is one that I've been struggling with myself. <laughs> I still struggle with discussions. They're, they're, they're tough. They can be really tough. Uh, but this is sort of bookending the the piece, and then once you've uh, once the authors have presented their results, it's it's trying to situate the results uh, back into the uh, field and and where where it fits within other literature. Again, how the results may build upon or align or not align with other research that's been conducted. So it's another great place to sort of try to see, well, what, what, so what? So you found these results, like what, what's the importance of that? And, and that's really where uh, the, you, you can uh, find what the authors are going to, are, are, are thinking, and then whether you agree with it or not. Right. And then there's a conclusion. Uh, another great place to even start um, because that's kind of supposedly the, you know, one, two punch uh, of the kind of like abstract um, you get like, you know, what is the main point? And, and that's, uh, that's, that's within the conclusion. So that's uh, a research paper in a nutshell. <laughs> and, and a great place to start. Um, so there are, and I know that probably everyone or many people in the, the audience may uh, already be aware of practitioner journals, but there's a lot of, there are, there are a few practitioner journals out there where you can find these types of papers that are meant to be more accessible for uh, practitioners um, and more, I wouldn't say user-friendly, but just uh, more focused on what is meaningful and important in a classroom, as opposed to uh, what's, what's meaningful and important to researchers. And so I think, and, and the nice thing about these places are that there's both like teacher authors um, as practitioner authors, as well as research researchers. And so it's a nice mix of uh, w where we can try to find a nexus of research and practice. That's great. Yeah. And I will link those in, in this article related uh, for this podcast so that you have places to go. There's also uh, consortiums like ACM and CSTA, Computer Science Teachers Association, also has a lot of resources. So there are a lot of non-paywall ways to get um, access to research, research as well. Yeah, and I would also, um, sorry, I, I know this is kind of just a, a bonus. Uh, I, I always try to tell people that, and I just saw a post on Twitter somewhere that, you know, academics rarely read everything. So we have to read so much that we're, we're often skimming. Um, and so it, a lot of this can seem daunting, but 
uh, just skimming through to the places that you want to read. And then if you're really interested, going back and trying to figure out the details, I skim through most everything uh, these days uh, before I do, if, if, if I need to do a close read. Yeah, no, because there's so much out there. And Google Scholar is amazing. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. If you haven't found Google, Google Scholar yet, yeah, there's like anything you want at your fingertips. Yeah. Well, Jenny, thank you so much. I think this is going to be super helpful. Oh, thank you for putting this out. Again, I'm very excited. And I know that so many people will be um, excited to hear uh, the rest of the podcasts. 